I don't know if we have done the best that we can do um, with passing the baton because it's really hard. It's really hard to take time away from our day-to-day fights um, and figure out who are the next batch of leaders. What can I teach them? Um, I'm very, very fortunate that I have spent a lot of time with really, really wonderful mentors in the movement, and I've learned a lot from them. And one of the things they insisted is that I participate in paying it forward and passing it along. And is it difficult sometimes to set aside time? And um, I know you guys understand this, you know, intimately. Is it difficult to set aside time in our day-to-day, week-to-week and spend time with younger interns and younger staff and mentor them in the best way that we can. Yeah, yeah, it's actually really hard because it requires sacrifice. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Nick Solheim. I'm the co-founder and COO of American Moment, and it is great to be back with you once again. Before I get to our guest this week, I want to make the usual plug for AmericanMoment.org. That is obviously our website. Uh, if you'd like to go check it out and see all the things that we believe in, the programming that we have, um, we also have a bunch of great articles, videos, podcasts, etc. on Amcanon that our CCO, Jake, painstakingly puts together every week, so make sure to check that out. You should also be able to see now, this is very new, an application for our first ever Spring Fellowship for American Statecraft. That's right. We will be paying $3,000 a month to <clears throat> fellows to come to to D.C. We place them in internships. They do those internships four days a week, and then they spend all day on Friday getting indoctrinated by us, and we help to get them into jobs at the end of the summer. If that sounds like something you're interested in doing in the spring, and you're immediately employable uh, by the end of the spring, make sure to go to americamoment.org slash fellowship to apply. Now, <clears throat> I want to get to our guest this week. We had Alexa Walker, who is the director of coalitions at the Heritage Foundation, and also, very importantly, a new board member for American Moment. Um, we're very glad to have Alexa. Uh, we've worked with her on a lot of different <clears throat> projects and initiatives, She's fantastic, has a wealth of experience, um, both on the Hill and off, and we're really glad to have her. We spent the bulk of our time talking about um, how conservatives can learn to get along. Um, There have been a lot of ideological and generational divides in the conservative movement in the last couple years. And so we we talk about how can we notch some real wins uh, as, as we're figuring out all of our differences in the conservative movement. So really great episode. We will go now to Alexa Walker. Alexa, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So you know, as an avid listener of Moment of Truth, the way that we like to start the show, um, tell us, who who is Alexa Walker? How did you end up as the uh, director of coalitions at the Heritage Foundation and a board member of American Moment? Well, thank you on that note. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, I came from kind of a different background than I think a lot of folks that I've worked with and spent time with in D.C., Um, I grew up in the suburbs of Portland, Oregon, and people say that and they go, oh, my gosh. Yeah. My my first reaction was, ooh. And they go, ooh. Yeah. And they go, how did you make it out? And I kind of laugh, but then in all seriousness, say really great parents and divine intervention. Um, I remember growing up, um, I didn't really grow up in a family that was involved in politics, per se. My parents were very intentional, though, about raising me with strong values um, and and raising me to be a participant in civil society. I even have memories. Uh, my very first memory of that is actually going back to when I was, I think, probably, I think it was five. And it was Clinton's second election. And I remember my dad saying, Alexa, I want you to watch this. I want you to watch these debates. And of course, you know, it's a five-year-old. You, you don't know anything that's going on. You have no idea what this actually is. But him explaining why it's important that he, as a voter, participate and understand the issues and that what a vote meant in our country. And 
um, you know, as I moved through life and college, um, I kind of started to become more aware that I grew up differently and my parents thought differently. It was probably middle school when I realized, oh, actually, my parents do think very differently than my friend's parents. Um, <laughs> but nobody had to tell me that I, I shouldn't tell other people that. And that was, we talk about cancel culture now. I'm like, I grew up in cancel culture. It's been around forever. I think the left has managed to warp and um, describe it differently now. And the right, of course, I think is more aware, but that's the world in which I grew up in is that you you didn't talk about why you thought differently, you know, outside of your small circles and community and your household because you would be ostracized from society. Um in college, I also I was I was not the kid that was in college Republicans. I was not the kid that, you know, was really involved in, you know, some passion project in the political realm. But I had this very odd pull to D.C. Um, and I, major? My major, actually, long story short, um, I thought about majoring in political science and then I saw all of the classes that I would have to take. And I joke about it now, but. Um, I decided that wasn't for me and that I could petition the academic board <laughs> at my university to create my own major, which actually I think more college students should do. Um, the purpose of going to college is to is to learn. And for those of us who go to college that actually believe your major should equip you for um, life after college. Um, and that's an important process to be involved with. Um, I'm not really a box checking kind of person. And so I decided not to check other people's boxes um, and create my own major and had to go convince professors that I wasn't actually crazy and they, you know, could watch me while I played around in the academic sandbox a little bit. And so I called it. It's going to sound very woke. So forgive me for that. International relations and intercultural communication, Hmm. which is very interesting because the concepts and the practices that I learned in my major are actually what I do now. Um, so it's been wild to watch that come full circle. And it's laughable that I ended up in D.C. Again, going back to um, all of these interesting things sort of pulling me this direction um, over the course of my life. My parents actually, they went to D.C. for their honeymoon. They're history um, junkies, um, there's so many beautiful parts about Washington, D.C., some parts that we also don't like. <laughs> um, I came to Washington, D.C. on, you know, classic eighth grade field trip, and I just couldn't get enough of it. Um, and so even though I wasn't sort of in the conservative world, I had no idea what the Heritage Foundation was when I interned in Washington, D.C. before my senior year. I had no idea what Hillsdale was. Um, there's so many young people. You know, American Moment didn't exist. Um, I would have killed to connect with an organization like American Moment, who really, I mean, and this is something I've obviously valued about, you know, the organization that you guys set up and and why you do what you do is that you don't have to come from the right college or the right background or the right family or have the best connections to have an opportunity to learn in Washington, D.C. and serve your country in that way um, and the people that do. Um, And so I really wanted to come to Washington, D.C. and intern. Uh, At the time, my goal was to intern at the State Department, which I laugh about now because (laughs) it would have been Obama's State Department, you know, the bastion of conservatism. Yeah. Um, and I didn't get that internship, but I was crushed and I knew I was really called to be in BC. Um, and my dad and in his infinite wisdom said, Hey, you know, there's, there's this really interesting member of Congress and he happens to represent, um, where you go to school. And I just saw this clip of him on Fox news the other day and it was him at, you know, ex committee hearing and he was getting up and asking the attorney general to resign. And at the time, that was um, the Fast and Furious scandal. And it was this, you know, young, conservative Mormon Puerto Rican from Idaho. And his name was Raul Labrador. Um, And I ended up interning in his office and was very, very fortunate to be exposed to really some of the early conservatives that 
um, set in motion, I think, a lot of the things that we're living and breathing today for those of us who are junkies in this world. Um, and I worked for him after I graduated from college um, and then subsequently several other conservatives. And um, that's kind of what set everything in motion. But I love growing up in the Pacific Northwest. It's beautiful. It's it's heartbreaking, heart-wrenching to see what it has become and what the city of Portland has become. I was the gem of the Pacific Northwest, um, but it's heartbreaking not just because of, you know, all of the liberal bastion that has played out, you know, the Alinsky and grandchildren who, you know, the Alinsky and children left Chicago a generation ago yeah. um, and they and then their children set up shop um, and performed live experiments in all of the cities on, along the West Coast. And Portland happened to go pretty poorly. I think it's the one that descended into chaos the fastest, but I actually think it is one that is potentially most redeemable. Um, but it's not just because of um, the bad policies and that the economy is crashing. It's because of the people and their lives are, you know, many of them, you know, I don't want to say ruined beyond repair because I think there are a lot of redeemable things in this world, but um, those people have to live there. And so many people um, that haven't left, the reason they have to stay is because they can't afford to leave or they can't afford to stay and can afford to insulate themselves from the terrible policies that the left has inflicted upon our society there. Part of it, too, is not wanting to <clears throat> maybe leave the place that you grew up or the place where your family is like it's a it's a very tough decision to um to make to move to somewhere that's totally different unlike unlike where you grew up so i hope that most of our cities are redeemable but maybe we can put portland higher up on the list uh so what what is it that you do exactly now at the heritage foundation i mean i know but but for our listeners who might not know you personally tell us more about about your job so I currently serve as the director of coalitions at the Heritage Foundation. And one of my favorite parts about that job is I sort of sit at the intersection of policy and communications and I get to work with people. And I don't mean that in an oversimplified way, but that's that's what I do. Um, we get to wake up every morning and step back and see the 30,000 foot view and see that's over there. That's where we want to go. And we get to work with colleagues inside the Heritage Foundation, outside the Heritage Foundation, elected officials in DC, across the country, um, and other citizens to go build what we need to build to get where we need to be. Um, I like to say I define a coalition as a defined group of people working on a defined outcome which is really, really important. And we can talk more about that and why that's important to coalition building, particularly in the conservative movement in a defined timeline. And we can also talk about that. Um, I think a lot of times we gather a group of people and we say, you know, we're going to fight this next week or fight for this or against this next month. And that's all perfectly fine. But um, it's important to think of coalitions as longer term and playing the long game because those are the important ones too. Yeah. The <clears throat> thing that I'm really interested to discuss, um, it's a, this is a pretty broad theme and I think there are a lot of different places that we could go, but um, conservatives don't really, actually kind of the title I'm, I'm like sitting on is like conservatives need to behave or something like that mm -hmm. or like need to learn to behave themselves. Um, and so in, in thinking about this episode, um, I was... I was pondering how there have been so many, um, I mean, I've, I've really come of age in the political world, you know, post uh, the election of Trump in 16. And, mm -hmm. it, and it just seems like a lot of not being able to play on the same team, like unforced errors, um, mistakes that, that are made, you know, in all levels of government. So as you think about, you know, the conservative movement in your role right now, what are what are some of the strengths that you're seeing and some of the weaknesses? Mm. That's a great question. And, you know, I, I'll just caveat this by saying um, I'm not a political philosopher. I'm not a theorist. Um, I uh, leave that to the people who do it so well. Many of them 
I get to work with at the Heritage Foundation and across the movement. Um, I just try to look at people and how people behave and what their motivations are. So just caveating it by that. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of really, really wonderful people in the movement, but sort of both a strength and a weakness that I'd like to see more people approach with specific intention is we're going through a generational change in the movement right now. We're going through a generational change in America. I think that um, obviously everyone's seen that topic play out live um, in the presidential conversation, but it's playing out everywhere. It's playing actually out in business. Um, it's playing out um, in any other industry you can point to and think of. I think um, you know, I have a lot of friends who do and, and care about work in the tech policy space. And I think you could even say it's playing out there. So I think it's a strength because I've been very fortunate to, before I came to Heritage Work, um, which is a 50-year-old, uh, wonderful, amazing institution. Um, and I came from its sister 50-year-old institution. Um and when you get to work in a place like that, you get the gift of an actual conservative institution. Um, and so there's some of those I think we do really well. Um, the gift of hindsight when you don't have to have personally experienced that yourself. There's a lot we can learn from that. Um, I think that's a strength. I don't think we steward that as well. Um, but I think one of the weaknesses in that is that I don't know and you know I say this with the utmost respect to those of us who including heritage who do this kind of work but I don't know if we have done the best that we can do um, with passing the baton because it's really hard it's really hard to take time away from our day-to-day -day fights um, and figure out who are the next batch of leaders. What can I teach them? Um, I'm very, very fortunate that I have spent a lot of time with really, really wonderful mentors in the movement, and I've learned a lot from them. And one of the things they insisted is that I participate in paying it forward and passing it along. And is it difficult sometimes to set aside time? And um, I know you guys understand this, you know, intimately. Is it difficult to set aside time in our day-to-day, week-to-week and spend time with younger interns and younger staff and mentor them in the best way that we can? Yeah, yeah, it's actually really hard because it requires sacrifice. Um, and we have to be intentional about that. Um, I don't know. I know there's a lot of people who do that, but as a movement, we have got to figure out a way to do that better. Um, because I know as a younger leader in the movement, I, I crave understanding of, oh my gosh, this fight or this huge thing, it's happened before, but what did people do last time? You know, I don't want to make the same mistakes that people before me made. Um, I want, we want to be better. We want to win. We're tired of losing. Um, and I think our generation can say that, um, you know, maybe more than, you know, our previous generation, maybe not more than the generation before them, but I want to know that. I want to know more from people who are tired of losing um, and, and how they weathered that storm in their generation. Um, the other thing I think that maybe is a, you know, strength, but also a weakness, because um, I like to look at two sides of the same coin, because I think that's often how they work. A strength, man, we have some smart people. Oh my gosh, um, I'm just a junkie for learning. And I know you've had some brilliant people on the podcast that I've loved listening to. Um, at the same time, that means that all of these smart people are probably a part of a faction. Um, I think we've made a mistake sort of in this era coming out of um, the Reagan era and coming into the Trump era and re realizing um, had a great, you know, one of my former bosses, um, you know, was very intentional about wrestling with this as, you know, what does it mean to have a movement that marries the party of Reagan with the party of Trump? And that's not something we can ignore, guys. We have to figure that out. Um, but I think as we've looked to figure that out, we have become much more aware of these factions 
because we have really smart people who have very strong opinions and really good ideas. Um, but I think the, you know, sticky part about that is that factions, if we don't steward those well, can very easily descend into tribes. And that's, you know, that's not unique to politics or what we're talking about now or what we're talking about today. That's just people. That's how people work. That's how they've worked for thousands of years because we're hardwired to be in community and we're hardwired to, you know, wrestle to live. And when one faction rises above another, then it can descend into tribes and tribes can go to war. I mean, like that's like the course of history. And again, I there's other people who can explain that much more brilliantly than me. Um, the other weakness I I think we have right now is there's sort of this odd misnomer that's um, and again, someone smarter than I can can help us figure this out. But there's sort of this odd concept that we all are broken right now and we used to like all get along. Um, and that's just that's not the case. The conservative movement has never been a monolith. Um, we've always been a movement with factions. Um, and I spent a lot of time with uh, people that I consider mentors and who helped start what we sort of consider the modern conservative movement. Um, and they'll, they'll be the first to tell you, oh, yeah, we like all didn't get along. And uh, we we debated um, all the time, and sometimes we had really heated debates. I also, for what it's worth, think that's a current weakness of the movement. Um, I, like I don't think we debate as as much as we should. Um, and there's a really thoughtful, respectful way to do that. Um, that doesn't mean at the end of the debate even that you agree. That's not the purpose of a debate. Um, but again, that also just doesn't like happen magically in a vacuum. You have to be really, really intentional. I know that you guys have experienced this. Um, you have to be really intentional about how you set up a debate. Um, the people that you invite in to listen, the people that you then you know encourage to take something that they got from a debate. Debates should ex inspire action. Um, that's That's how you know you've done it right. Um, but it is worth working on that, I think, as a movement because um, people are watching. People are watching us. Um, and we should get better at going into these debates, being able to hold our own, carry these arguments, recommend solutions, and then bring people with us because those people are leaders and we're craving. I think you can look everywhere right now. We're craving good leadership. Um, and again, that doesn't mean we're all going to get along. Um, but I also think two other, and this is sort of pet peeves of mine, again, more on the people side, um, is we just live out our own self-fulfilling prophecy that we're terrible messengers. I get that maybe conservatives and Republicans could work on our messaging. But if we start every single conversation with we're just such terrible messengers. I don't know what we expect to happen. Do we expect us to then magically say, oh, but we're going to have this great messaging over here? Probably not. Um, and that gets to kind of my other second point. Um, I get that there's a lot of things to be frustrated with. And this is me, you know, more checking myself and, you know, trying to warmly um, encourage and maybe, you know, check some of my friends and colleagues. But we don't always have a great attitude. We just don't. Um, and that's not because we're bad people. Um, it's just because we see the hurt in this world and in our country. Um, we see what the left has done. Um, and that gives us a lot of reason to despair. It really does. We should be really, really upset. Um, we should be heartbroken. Um, but at the same time, we also have to figure out a way to have hope um, because hope is the best anecdote. And that's not, oh, rose-colored glasses, I'm just going to cover this up. There is real reason to have hope. And so I kind of think we just need to work on our attitude. It's like when we were younger and we went to school and we had a bad day or we went to whatever sports 
practice or um, activity that we did. And um, we came home and we complained to our parents and we just kept complaining and complaining and complaining, um, even if things kind of sucked. And our parents went, well, <laughs> if you have a better attitude about it, uh, I don't know, maybe things will be a little bit different for you. And they were right. That's why our parents told us is because it is important um, as people also because that's how we're wired. Um, I, I believe, and you know, this is something that um, obviously I'm a person of faith and my faith informs you know, my life and my relationships and my worldview, but we are, we, that's, we're hardwired for hope. Yeah. I'm, there's so, <clears throat> so many places I can go with that and I'm going to in order. So do it. So going back to, to the beginning of that, um, do you think that the generational and ideological divides on where the conservative movement is headed vis-a-vis -vis policy mostly line up? Yes and no. Um, I think that's something that we're watching play out live. Um, I, I think that one of the misalignments and where they don't line up is because um, different generations have derived their value structures of right and wrong, good and bad, you know, hope and promise and evil um, from different lived experiences. And I don't mean that in like a, what's your lived experience? You said the libtard word. I know. <laughs> lived, uh, experience. lived experience. But... <clears throat> You know, my grandparents' generation, um, my parents' generation, my generation, what was our first experience with evil on a national stage? What was it? Mine was different than my parents. Mine was different than my grandparents. Yeah. Um, and so when the people that they, the people that were leaders and elected officials in their society proposed a response to evil, um, which, you know, again, how are we, how do we perceive things as people? You know, what makes us angry? What makes us afraid? Oftentimes we talk a lot about that in the, you know, political space and how we craft messaging and how you tap into people's primary and secondary emotions. Um, but they're different. The, the generations look at, um, you know, the, the previous generation didn't look at China like we look at China. We look at China and go, oh, my gosh, why what why is no one paying attention to this? You know, my grandparents generation looked at evil in Europe. And so just their frame of reference for when we talk about maybe foreign policy, when we talk about national security is different because they also in their working years traveled to China for business and had a different experience. You know, our parents traveled for to China for business and had a different experience um, and they just might see the world differently. Um, there's nothing wrong with that, but I think we live in the here and now. Um, just because um, there was a previous evil um, or previous thing we were trying to fix in the policy space, just because it existed in some form 30, 40 years ago, um, doesn't necessarily mean it exists in the same form today. It might, though. But we should have a conversation about that. Um, I think we're um, all go. I think where you want me to go here, but you know we've we've spent a lot of time in the larger public talking about national security and foreign policy and what that means. And again, looking at the generational divides here, um, I think there's a lot we can learn from previous generations and how they managed world global conflict, but it was a different world. Um, it's a different world now. There's, but I, but I think that, again, going back to what I was saying earlier, our strengths and weaknesses, um, I think it's perfectly fine to have those um, philosophical debates. And we should, particularly those of us that are in, you know, the professional conservative circles not the conservative professionals like we do this for a living mm -hmm. so we should have more of those debates but at the end of the day i hope that we get better at turning the conversation to brass tacks um, i think some things people are gravitating towards right now is like okay well then what what are why are we funding this 
why are we setting ourselves and our allies up for failure? Um, what kinds of investment are we making in um, in policy? And why does the why is it important that we make the case to the American people on why certain things that the government is doing or funding also match up with our policy goals? Um, and I, I I think it's also a tougher case to make. You know, there's um, a, the, the news cycle is different. In our grandparents' generation, the way that people perceived evil in the world is different. They 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 got that information in a different medium in a different time frame. Whereas you know we can receive. I get updates on my phone about all the terrible things happening in Israel to our allies there. Um, I'm going to perceive that differently than you know. Well, this is a piece in a newspaper from two weeks ago, or you know something on the radio from several days ago. Um, I, but I think one thing we have to come to terms with, again, for those of us who work in this bubble, because again, this is not what the American people are seeing on their day-to-day basis, but we have a lot of things we have to deal with right now. And to, to take the words of a previous generation, now's the time for choosing. So we might have to let some things from the past go and not in a way to cast them out or not in a way to cast factions out. Um, I think we have to find a way to retool and rebuild them, but we have to choose because that's also, again, for those of us who do this work and are in this business, that's actually what the American people require. Um, What are some good examples of of that? I'm not trying to paint you in a corner, but... Um, good examples of things from the past that need to be, I won't say let go, I'll say renegotiated. Um, I'll say this and it's, you know, a self-reflective example. Um, I'll say that the, the way we do business and who we do business with, Mm. we've got to fix that. Um, both on a practical day-to-day level um i think we've you know i've had a great experience i've been at the heritage foundation for a little over a year now but um the way that we do business as a modern think tank um is different and that that's you know our, our wonderful leadership led by dr kevin roberts um they get that and we talk a lot about knowing what time it is in america and knowing what time it is at the heritage foundation there's a reason that we do things differently and we have different investments and we build different products and we engage with people differently than potentially 20 years ago because that's what's required. Mm-hmm. And we've had to say no to some things. We should ask ourselves that a lot more often. And it's not because the things we're saying no to are bad. It's that we have to choose. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the way that our country, um, I, I spent a lot of time um Internally, I'm a policy junkie, sort of in the national security China space. I've had the pleasure of spending time with, I think, some of our greatest minds um, for the last, uh, you know, six or seven years before I came to Heritage. Um, You see this as a pressure point right now. I think we have a lot of conversations on, you know, so the neocons, you know, do they really get it? You know, you have the sort of more isolationism factions you have the people who are uh sort of trying to find this third way on foreign policy you have people who don't care about foreign policy and they only care about domestic policy um i will i will leave it to your listeners Uh, and i think it is because we have had intentional debates there are factions that their ideas and their voice are are winning. Um, I think we've seen that play play out, you know, most robustly um, in the European theater and our conversations around policy in the United States. You know, what, what are our what are our priorities in the European theater with Ukraine? Um, I think that, and I, I'm I'm glad that we're continuing to see that play out um, in the Asian theater and um, and China. Um, I think there's a lot of really, really smart people who have the China question correct. 
Um, it is incredibly <clears throat> frustrating when you have to have a knockdown drag out argument, though, with someone who calls himself a conservative or a Republican. And inevitably, like that should lead you to believe that they have America's best interests at heart. And I think that they think that they do. But why are we why is it you know we've spent a lot of time at the heritage foundation talking about this but we should ask these questions why is it that we're allowing capital unfettered to flow out of this country and invest in chinese ai why are we allowing capital to flow out of this country and invest in chinese weapon systems oh that's capitalism <laughs> we just we have to and it's not. And, and, he, and, and you know, I've and this, it's funny we, we talk about that because I've had conversations with because, um, again, I, I, I like to pull these people together and make them actually debate and, you know, duke it out um, because I actually, at the end of the day, continue to be pretty impressed with where they all find themselves. And I think they find themselves um, really impressed with where they end up. Um, I've had a lot of conversations with my friends who would consider themselves more, you know, fiscal conservatives and that's forefront and center and how they think about public policy in America today. Um, and I don't think that they define that as capitalism. Yeah. And I think it's actually that those voices that I would like to see more, um, you know, more elevated because they're right. And that's you know those are the kinds of policies we have to reckon with and if there are people who a just aren't going to be with us at the end of the day um i'm not saying we need to you know i'm probably not the one who's going to say we need to excommunicate them um but i'm also the one that will say we need to be crystal clear that we do disagree with them and why mm -hmm. um and and the why piece is what we also have to function on more why do we disagree because we believe that we shouldn't empower our potentially number one, you know, external enemy to the United States that, you know, some we're having this conversation right now is trying to an ex existential threat to the United States of America. Um, maybe we shouldn't do that. Also, at the end of the day, that's not our money. We, we didn't we didn't you know, provide our, you know, God given values to our workplaces. Um, just to have the government, you know, take part of our paycheck and, you know, go spend it here or, you know, large companies that we may invest our retirement accounts in um, because we want to, you know, live our end years of life with dignity and hang out with our kids and grandkids. Maybe we don't want those same investment accounts also investing in Chinese military technology for people who actually want to eliminate us. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I was listening to this. Um, I'd highly recommend this to all of our listeners. One of the most interesting, I don't really like podcasts, but one of the most interesting podcasts I've ever listened to in my life. Um, the comedian Theo Vaughn had Tucker on his show for like almost three hours. And it, he had this bit in there where he talked about, and it's crazy. They, they talk about everything from like architecture to, to, to Zen to the, like, they just talked about everything. It was great. But he had this bit about, um, you know, all the people that are talking about, um, you know, this unrelenting passion for, like, free markets to the exclusion of everything else, right? So so only free markets, no government intervention at all. And and he was talking about how he, how he thinks those people are such a joke because he's like, we don't live in a capitalist society, actually. Um, like, we, we, we basically use... We have government, you know, put their hand on the scale for um, a lot of these big oligarchies that are sending literally know, everything. To, to, yeah, they put their hand on the scale for literally everything. One of the best, um, one of the best professional experiences I had um, was the time that I spent at the Republican Study Committee, and I worked with some of the best and brightest staff um, who probably will never get credit for the work that they did behind yeah. the scenes. Um, and just the the bloody battles that they fought for the right reasons um, and the wins that we got. Again, hardly any of them were ever calculated. And that's OK. It's OK to do things behind the scenes. But um, they are, you know, not all heroes wear capes. They're the guys and the gals who would sit and take, you know, <clears throat> pull all nighters and they would actually read 
all of the pieces of legislation that came to the floor of the house. Somebody's got. For, to I mean, it. somebody's got to do the dirty work, right? Um, it's not going to be the members. It's so. a lost. <laughs> it's a lost art. Um, but to your point about the government putting the hand on the scale, you know, they would ask these same questions about pieces of legislation because as conservatives, like I don't want the government picking winners and losers. I think that that's something no matter what faction we're in. Um, like maybe the government shouldn't just get to exclusively sit in their high tower unchecked and their, you know, bastion of bureaucracy and decide how our society is going to work. Yeah. Like maybe maybe decide. that's and, and that's not from a, you know, them trying. That's that's not what our founders intended yeah. at all. And I think they'd be rolling in their graves to see um, where we find ourselves today. But um being able to sit with my colleagues or learn from them. Um, and obviously, you know, every time you tell someone that this piece of legislation is picking winners and losers and it's not something that the government should do or, you know, it's a really bad um, investment for, uh, so like the government shouldn't be spending on this, it's too yeah. much money. Um, and that the system that we actually live and breathe today, it's not a free market system because there's all kinds of mock that's wrapped around there that, it's uh, nothing about it is you know it's unrecognizable and that's so unfortunate yeah um because there's people who have to live and breathe and work and raise their children and die in this country who are holding on to the last best pieces of it for us and none of that goes on in washington dc of course yeah well this winds up to the question the tactical question i was getting to was um you know and having the debates about these issues right because there are plenty of factions within the conservative movement right now so debates on things like um should america defend taiwan should we be sending you know should we allow these oligarchies to send like billions of dollars to china every year um debates about immigration trade foreign policy all of that um do you think those debates should be happening out in the open kind of like it's like open se open season right now right like <clears throat> anybody can basically go out and say i have this policy position and just like duke it out on the front lines and then you know they never end up agreeing and we never actually get anything passed um or do you think more of these conversations need to start happening behind the scenes and that venues need to be created for people to do so um i'm going to say both and and that's not at all to dodge your question and going back to you know what are our strengths and weaknesses as a movement and what i think we need to do more of um I think that there is a absolute time and place. And, you know, I know that there's people who do actually a great job, I think, of creating the space for the internal conversations. Um, I don't think that they're helpful over Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, we like to... <laughs> I say, I say like, this all the time. The conservative movement would be so much healthier if nobody were allowed to tweet. And you know what? There's there's a lot of us who make a living and, uh, you know, Twitter is a platform to reach a certain audience, but it is a certain audience. It's not the only audience and maybe probably not the most important audience. So that's maybe a nudge to um, some of us who and my friends who conduct their life over Twitter. <laughs> and again, like that's if that's your audience and that's your marketplace, go for it. But um, I think when we have the conversations that should be had internally, full open debates, you know, roll up your sleeves, get in the mud. I think those are the ones maybe that we're having too much publicly. And again, that's not at all to say that we shouldn't have public debates. Um, but the purpose of having a public debate is to allow people to make their case to the American people. And I think we're doing more of that. And yeah. surprisingly, I think we've talked about this. That seems to be catching on. But it requires people to be much more thoughtful in the language that they use, how they structure their debates. Um, we talk a lot internally about, um, you know, the Overton window that we find ourselves in and how we have to take that very seriously. Um, but what are we doing inside of the Overton window to make the policy victories go better over here? And sometimes that requires us to be more invested in the shaping public opinion and creating a demand for change. Because if we get better at the external debates and that practice, those are the things that create the political will mm -hmm. that get us to where we want to be on policy. But also we have all these smart people in the room. 
where are the 17th century salon style debates in the basement where we roll up our sleeves and we have, you know, old school, full on, you know, stand up. I, I wasn't, you know, cool enough to be part of debate club in high yeah. school or college, but I've, you know, been part of some of those smaller conversations over my career in DC. Um, and they're great. They're really, really great. We should find an opportunity to do that more. I know that there's organizations and different conferences that I've been to. Yeah, I'll say like the that the, the that they're really that, intentional about that. Yeah, like ISI does that really well. Like I love going to ISI. Quick plug for ISI. You know, if you're in the DC area and want to go to a cool event, they're always doing great debates and and stuff like that. Uh, my question is not, <clears throat> you know, I don't want that to be uh, misframed as. Um, I think we should go back to like smoke filled back rooms where this stuff just gets hashed out. Yeah, my, not at all. Yeah, not at more, all. more my thesis is um, it's obvious the conservative movement is headed in a particular direction. However, we are hampered by a certain set of uh, people in the party that are not willing to get on board with that. And to be able to pass legislation and that sort of thing, we we need to figure that out somehow mm -hmm. on either how to give them the boot and get somebody else in their place or get them on board with at least some of what we're what we're doing yeah. so um i think something that that that'd be helpful to kind of frame this discussion that we've been having is and i know you put some prep work into this um thinking about it's, like what, it's so they didn't come on your podcast and say something silly half caffeinated so that's that's all <laughs> that's all i ever do no notes um but uh what what are the factions right now like in the, in the conservative movement. And I think a lot of people have very different and also interesting answers. So I'm curious to hear what yours are. So I'm gonna look at this really differently. And again, you know, there's so many brilliant people who've broken down the policy, the what I would consider like the policy-based factions in the movement. Um, and I'll, I will throw four categories at you. And this is, again, just my own take is the, non you know philosopher theorist over here um but i think that there are i would say there are more categories i think than factions but you see them kind of behaving a little bit like factions if you actually think about it and take a step back which i think is interesting and i sort of call it the four e's the elites the electeds the evangelists and you could put you know the activists and you know everyone who does that for a living and then the everyday um, and I think there's two categories of sort of everyday conservatives, the people who, you know, live their lives and self-identify as a conservative and the people who live their lives. And I think this is like a lot of people where I think about where I grew up in Portland. Um, there's actually a lot of conservatives there, but they've never attached how they think about the world and their community um, and what they value in the United States. If you ask them, they'll tell you, but they don't equate that with the word conservative and and candidly not even the word republican because there are parts of our country where that's a dirty word um and so people just don't touch it um but it's really interesting because i think even before the 2016 election um we saw this faction of the everyday and the evangelists play out against the elected and elites. And I'm going to use an example of a former member of Congress that I worked for. And it's really fascinating because I think we're seeing some of this sort of echo through the 2016, the 2020 election, and then now. Um, but that kind of you have sort of your electants and elites on one side, and then you have your evangelists and your everyday on one side. And I, I worked for this guy um, by the name of Dave Bratt when he was first in Congress. Um, and he won a primary election in the state of Virginia against um, the sitting majority leader at the time, Eric Cantor. Um, there's this story that the people on the ground tell, and I, I got to spend, you know, their business owners, their community leaders, their farmers, their ranchers, um, their parents, and there's this beautiful town in Virginia called Culpeper. And it's it's a beautiful town, great people. And uh, there's a story about how they had, I don't know if it was like, you know, you can go read about this. I don't know if it was a, you know, town hall or I think it was like a town hall or a meeting. And Eric Cantor 
spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C. as the majority leader um, and not a lot of time in Culpeper, Virginia, which was part of his district. It's like not that far away compared no, to... No, not at all. Like, and where other places are. Towards the end of the primary election, when I think that they knew that there was something up, um, he rolled up you know, in his seven-vehicle motorcade with the lights on to Culpeper, Virginia, to this event. And the people who were the grassroots activists and the everyday people who lived in his district said, that's it, we're done. We're done with this. We're not doing this anymore. We have been forgotten. They don't care about this. They don't get how we live our lives. And, you know, there's a lot of things that were wrapped up in Dave Bratt's original run for Congress, but we saw that play out. And this is before Trump ran. Um, this is before some of the things that we're seeing play out live in America today. Um, and I think one of the things that's most interesting, you know, we've all heard people say, um, you know, your elected officials are a mirror, are a mirror of what we're seeing play out in, in society. And so, um, when we talk about sort of these four categories or factions and how they interact with each other. Um, everyone and their grandmother who works in the space that we do has opinions about the elected officials that we've seen. They like them. They don't like them. They don't like their personality. They like their personality. They don't like their policies. They like their policies. That's for everyone else to decide. Um, but we're, we're seeing something really, really interesting take place where I don't know. Maybe you have an opinion on this, but I don't know if everyone's been like thrilled with every level of elected official that has decision making over their day to day lives. I unfortunately live in Washington, D.C. I really, really don't like the politicians that govern Washington, D.C. I think they're wrong on pretty much everything. I don't think that they have the best interest all the time of their you know constituents at heart. But We'll leave that for um, we'll leave that for other people to talk about another day, but we're seeing something really fascinating happen as I've traveled the country um, and gotten out of side of D.C., which we should all do more often as conservatives because it totally changes your perspective in the best way, um, and I think it puts you in a position where you're having to ask and answer different questions that you maybe didn't have to grapple with when you're so sucked inside this bubble. Um, and I know we all talk about that. Oh, DC's a bubble. Oh, we're, you know, you know, don't have the, you know, beltway mentality. Okay, great. What are you doing to check yourself at the door? Um, very intentionally every time that you wake up, what other inflows are you putting into how, you know, you intake from everything around you and everything that has a voice and opinion because it affects your worldview, whether you, whether you see it or not. But I have to tell you, the, you know, the governors that we see, the Republican governors across the country, the attorney generals, you know, the state elected officials, um, the parents that ran for school board this last election because they had had it. Oh, my gosh, we should have so much reason to have hope. And if that if that is the reflection of where we are today and we see, you know, the if you sort of take the evangelists and the um, everyday conservatives and they're reflecting those kind of elected officials, you know, we'll talk about the elites and I'll talk about the elites in a second. We're going to leave them over here. Yeah. Um, that's great. Um, it's, it's, we should be all, that should give us reason to be really, really excited and then ask, okay, how did that happen? Everybody talks about, you know, the parents who woke up during COVID and said, that's it and started their own revolution. We've seen incredible organizations like Moms for Liberty, who we work with a lot, you know, grow out of that. We should sit down and go, okay, what 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 happened on the ground where, you know, these factions were sitting over here and decided to come in and take charge and change the game? Because that's actually how it's supposed to work in our country. We should find a way to recreate that on other issues because it's totally possible. And I actually think we have some other things cooking in the oven that could look like that, but slightly on a different issue. Um, I also think about, you know, everyone, again, has their opinion about what has played out live in the speaker's race and the House of Representatives. But um, I, I saw this coming. Um, but Mike Johnson's the speaker of the House. 
that's so awesome. I, you know, I, I can't under, uh, you know, I, I can't underscore how excited I am for that. I'm a little biased because I spent two years working for him when he was the Republican Study Committee chair. And I saw the things that he required us to invest in as staff. Um, but the um, trust that he had in us, um, how intentional he was in changing not only the culture of how members interacted with each other, but the organizational structure. And both of those things are really, really important and really key ingredients in putting us on a winning track. Um, but if Mike Johnson is the, I mean, he's a man of character, integrity, he's brilliant. If that's, you know, the House of Representatives, which is, you know, our majority capture of what's going on and how people think in this country, if that's the reflection of where we're at now, I think we're on a really good track. Yeah. <clears throat> I think as a last question, um, I think we, we, to your point about hope, I think conservatives have lost in a lot of ways because we have not been able to articulate a positive vision um, for things. I can I can use a, a, a topic here that's like not really talked about at all anymore um, so that we can speak freely about it. Um, healthcare. Mm. Like we like don't, we really never had like a, like a positive um, vision for that. Um, what, are, what are some other areas that you can think of that are, that are ripe for conservatives to be able to articulate a positive vis vision for what the future of America looks like? Mm, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> obviously, you know, education is a big one. I think it goes far, far beyond what we're actually seeing play out live right now. I think there's a lot more left on the table. It's not just about education choice. That's a huge one. We've got a lot more to go there. Um, it is a ripe issue. And when we talk about, I talk a lot about, and you know, the practice that I am in of this ever-changing world of, of coalition activity, I talk about issues that are ripe or like aren't ripe enough. And if you have an issue that's not quite ripe enough, what are you doing? What kinds of input are you investing to make it a ripe issue? But then that goes to, you know, how are we seeding debate? How are we platforming leaders who have really good ideas? How are we going externally and telling the stories to make the case to the American people that then leads us to um, a position where we have the political will and all of the pieces to enact the change? Um, you know, I think the American people feel very insecure right now. Um, I think we're starting to see that play out a little bit, depending on where you live. And again, stepping outside of D.C., but um, they look around at the crime in their communities and it's awful. It's really, really awful, both if you live in a city and if you live in a rural area. Um, you know, the, the spike in the homicide rate. Um, in cities and the fact that in so many American cities today, I was reading the other day that I can't remember what city it was in, maybe LA, that like they don't even prosecute um, people who go to a store and steal. It's like $1,000. They only prosecute people who steal $1,000 worth of merchandise. So people are literally going and stealing, you know, $999 worth of merchandise. And regardless of where people are or where they self-identify on the political spectrum, they go, you gotta be kidding me. That's crazy. People, the American people are very smart. They're very attentive, actually. I know that I know, I've had debates with other conservatives who think the American people are, are, are dumb. And it's like, okay, well, what's your definition of dumb? <laughs> they, they tend to not overthink things. And, you know, paralysis by analysis plagues the conservative movement for those of us who are sort of in the circle of elites, um, they're actually very smart. And if you ask them what solutions they want, they will tell you. Yeah. Um, at the same time, you know, they feel insecure. They, they look at what's going on around the world. And, um, you know, we, we are just talked about the debates that are playing out live in different theaters and conflicts. And um, yeah, they, they don't want the solutions we had a decade ago or maybe two de decades ago. Um, I think they've been pretty clear about that when we've asked them. Um, I also think that the, some of the, you know, the security issue, I mean, we have all the answers in front of us. Um, we know that 
open borders is not an appropriate in any way, shape or form, um, you know, unfettered, you know, you know, pluses up and, you know, immigration and visas like that's just the American people have made it really clear. They don't want open borders. Um, and that's I don't mean that in a in a way to be disrespectful to people who you know have different opinions. But the American people have been really clear. That's not what they want. The people who are not picking that up should wake up and smell the coffee. Yeah. Um, because the reason they don't want it is because their lives are being ruined. They don't want illegal aliens who are coming into their smaller rural communities with, you know, backpacks full of fentanyl um, and other drugs that are laced with fentanyl coming. And like the, you know, the statistic that everybody gravitates towards when we talk about this is, you know, the number one cause of death of young people between the ages of 18 and 45 is fentanyl overdose. We've we've got to stop and take a step back. Um, this is an issue that has to be ripe for the American people. We already see people talking about it, but I would implore my friends, we cannot just have this conversation in Washington, D.C. It won't work. When we talk about issues that are ripe, we have to go where the American people are because they are also our best weapon because they're the storytellers. They they can very clearly articulate how this is affecting their lives. Um, they're our magic weapon. They're the people that, um, I think a lot of times conservatives, you know, run out of the gates with our sword and we want to just swashbuckle and we should start with a story. And again, that's not a way to water down the very specific solutions that we want to bring to the table. But we, we, if we want different outcomes, we have got to do some things that are different. Um, and I mean that again, in an honest, respectful, hopeful way, but it is because you know, the people who, you know, we all work with in this business because we're not doing it for us. We're not doing it for a paycheck. I don't wake up, you know, nobody wakes up every single day and like, you know, maybe some people do, uh, but you know, we'll we, Georgetown. <laughs> Georgetown oh my gosh. Um, talk about, yeah, college campuses going back to the education issue. I mean, the, these issues are, are ripe for us to address, um, but conservatives, we, We've we've got to we've got to think about our attitude, and we've got to think about our our game plan and the plays that we run. Campuses, Georgetown, for an example. Can you imagine how many conservatives have actually come through Georgetown and these universities where we're seeing absolute crazy play out live? If we don't like the institutions of higher ed, conservatives, more conservatives should speak up about it. I'm so fortunate that I get to work with colleagues at the Heritage Foundation who have brilliant ideas and have been articulate. Um, more of us have to be thoughtful. If every single college graduate who saw something disgusting over the last week played out live on their college campus, wrote a letter to the board of trustees and said, I'm, I'm appalled. I'm embarrassed that this is my alma mater. You need to do something. What are you going to do? Uh, and then we told everyone that we did that. I, I actually think we might see something different than we're seeing right now yeah <clears throat> i think that's totally right um alexa where can people find you keep up with all the great work that you're doing at the heritage foundation etc um i am on twitter oh you're gonna tell them to follow you on twitter. I, okay. I i will say i don't typically say too many interesting things i i, I try to point to things that I think people should care about or other people I think have really thoughtful things to say. But some of our Hill staffers and stuff might have like professional questions and that yeah. sort of thing. They could reach out to the, the The DMs are open. Um, obviously, my great friends at, uh, yeah, but don't send me anything creepy. Um, the, <laughs> my great friends at American Moment, um, for those of you who um, want to be connected to, um, you know, I, I'd love to connect more people who want to get into this crazy world uh, with mentors because again as i said earlier i think that's so important and passing the baton but um, i i can't say enough about the wonderful brilliant colleagues that i work with at the heritage foundation you can go to heritage.org um i, I think the, the reason you know i spent a decade on capitol hill but the reason that i left is because i think that the heritage foundation is doing something pretty special um I think that I have the best job at the Heritage Foundation because not only do I get to work with everyone who's at the Heritage Foundation, I get to work with the best and the brightest and the people who are really changing the game, not just today, but 
10 years from now. Um, it's why I love working with you guys, Nick. And um, yeah, let's, you. let's go. Let's, let's do it more. All we, right. we need more people on the bus. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. And that's a wrap. Thank you for uh, joining us for one more episode of Moment of Truth. We'll be back again next week. Make sure that you check out AmericanMoment.org for all the things going on with um, current events, our programming, the kind of uh, the events that we're throwing here in D.C. Uh, make sure that you go and, and, and check that out. Also, make sure that you apply uh, for the Spring Fellowship for American Statecraft 2024. Um, send it to all your friends. We're, we're really looking forward to meeting some of you here in D.C. coming in the spring. Thanks so much, and we'll see you again next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.